and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is author, playwright, actor, comedian and presenter Max Dickens. And I invited Max onto the podcast because I think he may know the secret. And by secret, I do mean the secret to life. And yes, I am being a bit flippant here, but Max is the co-director of Hoopla, the UK's first improvisation training school in London, and is something of an expert in making the most of unscripted situations. And if you like the way my brain is going here, if you think of life as a series of unscripted situations, then the art of improvisation and being skilled in such a thing could make you better at life, no? It's for this reason I was excited to speak to Max and I actually really, really enjoyed getting to pick his brain and have this conversation with him because I was able to learn so much during our chat. Max's latest book, Improvise, Use the Secrets of Improv to Achieve Extraordinary Results at Work, uses the skills required in improvisation to maximise one's success in the workplace. So again, it makes sense that these skills would parlay into social life, romantic life, family life also. In this episode, we discuss what improvisation is and the powerful and very positive impact it has had on Max's life how to maximise any situation you find yourself in by giving and receiving offers, and the role that confidence plays in how you handle any situation you find yourself in. No conversation about improvisation would be complete without discussing the power of using yes and. Plus, we also discuss the way improvisation changes the way you think and think on your feet, as well as how knowing what's coming can feel comforting and secure, but can also be quite limiting, and how improvisation and opening yourself up to the unknown can also open up the world. All the links to Max, to Hoopla and to Max's books will be in the show notes. But without any further ado, please do join me in welcoming Max Dickens to The Emma Gunn Show. Max Dickens, welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. How are you? I'm very well, Emma. It's delighted to be with you today. Looking forward to uh, talking about all sorts of things. And yeah, it's the, it's, it's the morning time. I'm at my best energy. Looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, good. This is, your, this is you at your peak. The, yeah, this is peak. When it hits 10 a.m. I'm, you know, bad. I'm really poor company. So oh. this is the golden hour. Great. Fantastic. I'm so glad I know this. <laughs> so what about the rest of the day? Is it just downhill? Should you just hide in a really cold, dark room? Yeah, exactly. I have a I have sixty good minutes, and the rest is um, is poor, basically. Um, a slight exaggeration, but no, I'm I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So uh, I'm looking forward to this because uh, a few weeks ago, your book, which is Improvise, use a sequence of improv to achieve extraordinary results at work, uh, fell onto my doormat in a scene out of a Richard Curtis movie. Hmm. Not long after, I'd had a conversation with a really dear friend who is living her best life in another country she um moved completely and decided to make friends through improv and drama and is the happiest she's ever been so when this book landed on my doormat I thought well I have to read this because there's obviously some magic here and is there magic in improv there is magic in improv and what's brilliant about it is how simple it can be so so much of improv is about Imagine the best conversations you ever have. What if you could decode that and reduce that down into some principles you can use again and again? And that's what I think improv can do. It's like it's like yoga for your soft skills is probably a nice way of thinking. I love that. How did you get into yoga? And I know the story because the book starts with your first ever improv class. But what do you think drew you towards improv? 
Yeah, well, my background was in stand-up comedy, so I was on the I was on the circuit doing it professionally. And what a lot of people don't understand about stand-up is it's very scripted. Even when someone makes a hilarious mistake, they've probably done that like twenty-five times before. And even when you work with a crowd and do sort of crowd banter, which you might have seen in a comedy club, a lot of that those lines that come out and are inverted commas spontaneous you've used before. So I felt quite trapped in my script and I thought it was also an analogy for my life. I felt a bit trapped in my life in that if things went a bit um, doolally or went a bit, you know, away from what I was used to, then I, I lacked confidence. And so I was find, trying to find a way to be more confident. So that's what got me into the class initially. But I was like a lot of people probably listening to, to your show today probably thinking this is nonsense I'm going to give up I'll do one and then you know I've at least I've given it a go but I just fell in love with it and I, I started seeing such tangible results not just on stage but off stage and eventually it ended up being my whole career and that really was a an improvisation in itself but I, I, I'm a massive believer in it but that's how I ended up in my first class well because I mean when I started to think about it when I was reading the book I thought well life is improvised mm. and so actually this is sort of when you look at it like that everything that you do every car journey that you take every conversation that you have you're just reacting listening being kind of very much in the moment is that is as you say is it kind of is improv distilling it all down into decoding it and is it does it help you understand the world and people better I, th I think it definitely helps you understand people. And like you say, I, life is improvisation. If we get into like a simple definition of improv, right? Impro improvisation is the art of acting without a script. And often that happens on stage. And like you're, I'm sure your, your friend has improvised on stage. But we act without a script in life. This conversation is improvised. Um, uh, all communication is improvised. When we're solving problems we've not solved before, pursuing new projects we haven't pursued before, uh, working with other people and all the vagaries of that, it's all improvised. And underneath that is a certain methodology that, that we can learn to get, to get that much better at it. And so, and also the, th the other thing you've done is you've parlayed it into business. So it's not just about what you do on stage or what you do in your workshops. It's about, right, let's work and try and make you better at your business pitches or make you more confident in the boardroom or uh, improve your public speaking. So you obviously fell in love with improvisation. And I was curious before we get into how you've decoded it and like you tell us the magic and the secrets mm -hmm. of it. Do you look at life a little bit like pre-improv and post-improv? Oh, do you know what? No, I've never, never been asked that question before. It's a really good one. Um, so, so well done. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's, no, this really, it's really got me thinking. I th yeah, I do. And I don't think you quite appreciate what it's done for you and let, until you've done it for a while. And I, the, the analogy I use in the conclusion, actually, is it's a bit like if you've been in a long-term relationship that hasn't worked for a while, and then you leave that relationship and you fall in love with someone new and you're like, oh my God, that's what love can be like or that's what life can be like. And I feel a little bit, when I started getting into doing improvisation, I was like, my God, that's how exciting and interesting life can be. And I've been slightly deadened before. And not deadened in a, in a necessary, very melancholic sense. It's just I was so set in my ways I was so afraid of uncertainty so afraid of messy conversations so I'd have to have everything really prepared and now I'm I think what I've got is is confidence but the way I think of confidence is freedom so freedom from you know constant anxiety and inhibitions freedom from uh, having to be liked by everyone and that freedom is what I do really notice. So pre and post improv, post improv is very much me feeling like there's a weight lifted and I just trust myself so much more. And what was it about improv that allowed you to feel those things? Because you can go into a situation and perhaps learn it and it doesn't really resonate. But when did you start noticing it and how did you, were you would you just go out and maybe go on a date or just be in a work environment or whatever it might be, be having a conversation with someone and think that went better because of what happened in the workshop. Was it, was it stuff like that? 
Yeah, I think I started to realize how much is there in the moment that I would miss because I was trying to make it into what I expected it to be or what I planned it to be. So, I mean, a date's a really good example. When I was a younger guy, I might, before the date, I mean, not in an insane psychopath way, but you kind of think like, mm, these are sort of things I might talk about. These are some questions I might ask. Because it's, it's nerve-wracking, right, going on a date. How do you feel about lotion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's your favourite hair gel? What, what's, what pasta sauce do you enjoy? You know, classic date questions. Mm. But really, what you re- what I realised having doing improv is how much is there in the moment. And so we have this idea of offers, right? So it's maybe to get a bit more specific for everyone the currency of improvisation on stage and off stage is offers. Everything we do or say or anything the world does or or says, our environment in other words, contains what we call offers. And an offer might be an idea, it might be a word or phrase, in a person, it might be non-verbals. And when you see the world in those terms, you see offers everywhere. So talk about finding more in the moment. If you're on that date situation, you get to read people a lot more and if you sit in the uncertainty, for example, rather than having the, I know the question about lotions was a joke one, but rather than having a pre-prepared thing you normally talk about on a date or the kind of the cliches, if you're prepared to just sit in a conversation and see where it goes, trusting that something interesting is going to happen, you end up connecting way better to everyone and stumbling across things you would never have done if you were stuck in your head, which is what we're so often doing, right? We're stuck in our head, stuck in a script rather than actually feeding off what's right in front of our eyes. And that's what really struck me as a big difference, is that it can be so comforting to think, I know this situation, I know what this person is all about. And you live in a narrative that you've really created, and it's quite rigid and uh, sharp. And then from what I got from the book is, get out of the head, get out of that. And just, it's a bit like the Matrix, isn't it, really? We, it was only a matter of time before I said red pill, <laughs> blue pill. But... It's a case of almost you slow down and observe. And I guess in terms of it really struck me as well about confidence and about people who struggle with anxiety. Mm. And I've been in that situation before where I walk into a situation and I just can't appreciate it because I'm so riddled with nerves and anxiety. And so I take myself out of it. So Mm. for someone listening to this who might relate to that, do you think improv... Is there a way of easing into it? If someone's thinking, actually, I quite like the idea of increasing my confidence, but the idea of just like riffing with someone in front of other people terrifies me. Yeah, so God, there's, there's loads we can talk about <laughs> around this. So, um, so firstly, so if someone is thinking of taking an improv class, and I'm very happy to re- recommend some to anyone at all, um, the kind of cliches, it's going to be all the drama kids from school showing off doing dances and singing songs but actually it's not that at all at least half the half the group in any beginners class are going to be people who are very nervous who are have no experience whatsoever and improv is taught if you've never done a class is taught through pair and little group exercises initially so before you get anywhere near a stage you'll be doing those exercises and you get most of the benefit from the exercises and you can perform if you want but you don't have to. And a lot of your classes won't be in front of other people. So that's just something to kind of address if, if anyone's thinking of doing an improv class. And you can also do them online as well now. Um, so if you're still in COVID times and you're struggling to, to find a class, you can do it online. So that's one thing. But in terms of the anxiety stuff, so there's a couple of things from improv I think are really helpful. What, one thing we say in improv is if you want to get out of your head, get into something else now what is that something else on stage it's our scene partner okay so we're focusing fundamentally on listening and noticing more of what's happening so um anxiety is often a very inward emotion it's kind of it's rumination it's it's the energy is that, that nervous energy comes from that it's all inward whereas if you put your focus outward you'll find anxiety um evaporates a little bit and also you realize that often social anxieties i won't know what to say but you'll find by listening really well you'll end up having loads of things to say and another idea from improv is this idea of being obvious so so much of communication i think and if you're a socially anxious person is about being obvious um and a great example of 
of this, I think, is in Zoom times. If you want to get really good at Zoom calls, a way to have great rapport at the top of it is to say something really, really obvious. So, like, I mean, I can, I can so, see behind so. you. I can see see behind you. You've got a uh, you've got a photo of a guy, a dude on a uh, motorbike. It's not a dude. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Max. Oh, is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> ah. <laughs> he looks a bit too uh, too slim for Arnie. That's good. Where did you get that from? It's Terminator Two. So. Oh, is it? Yeah. Terminator Two, lovely. Oh, I I really want to know why you've got Terminator Two on your wall now. <laughs> uh, because Arnold Schwarzenegger is a hero. Fair play. <laughs> I read his. Well, no, I've always really liked him, and I read his book Total Recall. Mm. And if you just understand how that guy thinks and how he's approached his life it's a lot to be admired. There's a lot to be admired in it. I don't want to get, what, what's going to happen here is I can do a good 90 minutes solid. So let's focus back on you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I've just wanted to do that just to illustrate the principle of what being obvious is. That took absolutely no effort from me. I just noticed something and I said it. And then you responded because you were interested in it and it was connected to you. So that's how easy it can be. But when we're in social situations, we get really anxious. It's like, I have to say the perfect thing. I have to say a clever thing. I have to say a funny thing. But actually, connection can be a lot easier. If you want to get less anxious, focus on listening and let yourself be obvious and you'll end up getting to something interesting. We don't only want to say obvious things all the time. But if you <laughs> take that pressure off, you connect really easier. Uh, so so that, that, is, that is another example of how improv can make you less socially anxious. And the thing, again, that struck me about it was uh, for, for people listening, and I know there are many who've gone through, say, counselling or they've seen a therapist and maybe they're people pleasers. Mm -hmm. They would have spent a lot of time working on not paying attention to what everyone else wants and needs and trying to focus on themselves. So that was the only hurdle I found with improv. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the piece I wanted you to help me with is cool. how did how do you stay a part of it without domin dominating it? If, so you're not just surrendering everything to all your offers. You're actually a paying, still a paying attention to how you feel. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good question. So, I mean, the, the kind of the headline idea in improv, and there's a whole chapter on it in the book is what we call yes. And so yes, and is a really good technique on stage to efficiently build a scene together, build comedy, build, the action and in conversations creatively it's really good really useful as well yes and is i say yes to your idea i accept it i don't always agree with it i accept it and the and is what my ad is my building to that idea so we're building the idea together so to answer your question the and is your point of view your perspective your feeling your personality and it's almost impossible to take your your character your experience your point of view out of communication anyway but the and is where you get to express that explicitly so we talk in improv by the way not just about listening and listening is really important and we talk about listening as the willingness to be changed by other people's ideas it's a slightly different definition of listening but we talk about giving giving and taking focus a lot of people in life are really good at taking focus not so good at giving it but then others like you just said you know you you're looking at not always taking care of other people not always being the one who facilitates sometimes we want people to take focus and take the lead as well so the idea of improv is not that you don't contribute and you don't give of your ideas and your perspectives it's you we definitely need you to do that it's just being self-aware enough to know that there's give and take and if we're going to co-create something especially in the moment that's what we need so again a great conversation is not just me listening to you asking you questions it's also giving my ads, my builds, my stories, so that we're moving the conversation forward. So it's a balance of the two things. Do you think it's quite brave? Improvisation is quite brave. I think it is certainly initially, because it's when you first start doing it, it's the unknown. Does it just as anything doing anything for the first time? But to, to improvise is definitely brave generally because you don't necessarily know the result because you're not in in this you know you're not in the plan you're not in the script but i would say that's assuming that the plan is always right and the plan works out now i think there's huge risks in plans i, I mean i can talk about endless things where i a good example is the book you know the book was really planned the first draft was really planned and it's scripted and you know obviously you know that's great it's finished ripped up started again 
that that plan wasn't useless. There was no safety in that plan. I had to re I decided to rewrite the book. And how often in life do we do that? Like a great example is companies that something like Kodak goes bust, right? Kodak, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world, or Nokia is another example. They had all their plans, but there was no there was no safety in that. Actually, there was more safety in the innovation, the embracing the uncertainty. I think often mm. in life that, that translates to, to almost anything is that what we want is the best outcome for us. And that isn't always to be safe and be in the script. So it's brave in that you have to dance with uncertainty a little bit. But also I think it's sensible and then there's great comfort in that. One of my best uh, exam results in my first year of university was for psychology. And, yeah. it was, and it's because it was multiple choice. <laughs> and <laughs> I... One of the questions, one of the multiple choices was something like Freud said that change was, and there were lots of options. And I remember it because I just instinctively answered. I didn't know the answer because I had learned it. And I, and I think it was that people thought that change was toxic or noxious. And I thought, well, that's nonsense. It shouldn't be. And I do think that if change was really bad, then no one would ever do it. No one would ever move house. No one would ever wear a different pair of trousers no like so I think change has got to be good and I feel like that's something that was coming through the book as well is that change things happening maybe when you weren't expecting rather than looking at them and going oh my goodness my normal is now completely changed and I will react to that by having a big panic it's actually to go oh yeah okay what's this going to be do you think that's again another life lesson from improv yeah absolutely so um, we have this, a couple of things there. We have this, uh, the idea that everything is an offer, right? So we talked about offers a bit earlier, but, but things happen in scenes or in life that look like mistakes or look like real curveballs. But if you have the mindset of what can I use here? Where's the offer here? It helps you reframe it and, and embrace it with positivity. But I, th I think it may be linked here is that a key part of dealing with change is letting go of the old plan, which we, we often cling on to because we have you know, psychologists would say it's a sunk cost bias, right? It's a cognitive bias that we have when we've invested time, energy, our, our emotion into something, we find it really hard to let go. But if you can't let that go, you can't see and build on the opportunity in the moment. And I think, I don't know what your experience was, Emma, but for me, when the first lockdown happened, I felt like quite a profound sense of grief because it was, I was mourning look loads of things that have fallen through like the book launch ended up happening in august which should have happened months before there were loads of speaking gigs all sorts of things and on the business side in our improv school we had to kind of cancel everything move it all on 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 online and then there was this I, my identity was working with other people communicating with others that was lost inside of the future but until i could let go of that grief i couldn't embrace what was there in the moment which was actually all sorts of things that I never would have got to if I hadn't had that experience. And I'm this whole COVID situation for everyone is a very mixed bag. I don't want to make be flippant about it. But, you know, I, I get the chance to work with people in Europe now in workshops that I never, we wouldn't have done it because no one was using Zoom. I didn't even know what it was until <laughs> March, right? But that's an example of you know, dealing with change is about letting go of the old plan to embrace what's there. And so there's two sides of it, the reframing of it, everything's an offer, and the surrendering of the old stuff to get to the new stuff. And I think that's the real, the real challenge. I do think that's really powerful. I really, really do. And it's so funny. It's unexpected to sort of come via these rules in a book like this, because it wouldn't have been necessarily what I expected about improvisation. I think I would have thought, you had to be a certain type of person. It's for some people. It's not for everybody. Mm. But actually, it's incredibly inclusive. And so much of it is so applicable, as you say, even to lockdown life. But I love the idea of accepting it and then surrendering. Yeah. And see, it's yes and there. It works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and making a decision. So maybe another concept here that's related to what we're talking about is what we call it negotiation. It's maybe another way of saying paralysis by analysis. Like in classes, right, we'll get two, in, we'll get two people on, on stage and go, right, you're going to do a little scene. You just imagine you're in, a, you're in a rowing boat and you're going to a desert island. Let's just see what happens. And the beginner improvisers will just talk about being in the boat, what they could do at the island, what might happen, 
and the experienced ones, the good ones, get to the island and stuff happens. But how often do we make decisions like that? We talk about what we could do. So part of dealing with change is not only the the, the reframing the moment, uh, the surrendering the plan, but also making a choice. And we say in improv, the only bad choice is no choice because when we're making a choice, we're getting feedback. We can always pivot and move to a different choice. But if we're not making choices continually in life, then we're not learning, we're not moving forward. And so, so much of dealing with uncertainty, dealing with the future, maybe there is a degree of bravery here to go back to your last question, is, is making choices so we can learn and push forward. But with the idea that we learn by doing, you don't have to know eight steps ahead. You can learn, know one step and step by step get there anyway, but do it in a more agile, more flexible way. It's uh, also strikes me as well that it's very hard to make mistakes. And actually, that's a really nice way to look at life. It's not a mistake, it's a learning. Exactly. And, you know, mistakes often, again, I keep on going back to scenes. If you watch an improv show, a mistake will happen. It obviously will often get a huge laugh and pivot you to somewhere creatively. You wouldn't have got to in just the linear way. And sometimes mistakes can be gifts. And some mistakes are useless. Like if I drop my cup of tea on the floor, I mean, there's not my great benefit in that. But often in life, they are serendipitous as long as we let ourselves frame them as that rather than having that very shame response in the moment. And I think we live in a culture which we learn shame almost implicitly from, especially in, in, this, in this landscape around social media. I mean, how many times do you go on social media and go, bloody hell, everyone's got a better life than me or everyone's doing well? We, we, fear, we fear failure because we associate shame with that failure and shame with the mistake. And that's what inhibits us reframing it and seeing the positivity in it. Yeah, we do seem to spend a lot of time working really hard not to let, other, not to let things affect us, social media being such a key example. How many times have you seen the meme comparison as the thief of joy, but whilst you're on Instagram? Yeah, exactly. Whilst you're on Instagram looking at someone's holiday snaps going, oh, I only went to the Isle of Wight. <laughs> holidays what are they yeah exactly um you said something as well that I really like which is um about improvising and literal and rigorous thinking can you expand on that a bit more yeah so I think um there's a balance I think so what I'm not saying to everyone is hey guys just make it all up am I right because that's clearly <laughs> That's not going to work. I don't want you to improvise everything. If, for example, if you entirely improvise this podcast, it may end up being amazing. It may end up not. But I mean, I'm sure there's, well, maybe can connect this in a moment, but there is a balance between the rigorous analytical structured stuff and the improvised stuff. And you need to make room for both. And I think creativity is a great example of this. So creativity, a lot of people are afraid of creativity because they think it's, um, you either have it or you don't. But creativity is a process and it is a balance between the rational, the analytical, the structured and the spontaneous, the improvised uh, and the slightly ephemeral, right? And you need a balance of both. But the structured stuff helps you do the improvised stuff. So we need times where we're kind of free, where we're free thinking, we're brainstorming, we're all over the place in life as well as in a more structured creative process. But we also need times to go, right, well, let's now go, we've come up with these ideas or we've, we've, we've tried these experiments. Let's work out what the most successful one was and then pursue one of them. Or is this the best strategy? So you need to oscillate between the two. With the danger we have is when we're too stuck in a script and we don't get in the moment at all, or if we're just in the moment at no point do we wrestle it into something coherent uh, and solid um yes so you don't want to get too stuck in one way of thinking it's about finding a real balance and also um I re I like the expression disdain the spontaneous which I've also heard you use disdain the spontaneous yes we've learned to disdain the spontaneous and we pre-plan too much yeah I think so um and uh, I see this in all sorts of situations. Maybe a, a one really obvious one is, for example, when someone's giving a presentation or a speech or a pitch, they, they prepare almost, they prepare prose to read out. They really, but then they miss in the moment, for example, all sorts of offers. So I'll often 
work with people in pitch situations and I've been pitching to a client and I might be in the room and they'll be stuck in their script and I'll be watching them going, that client looks bored, they've got a question. Um, we can pursue those offers in the moment and let's not disdain what's actually there. So what, there's, there's real resources in the moment. So to go back to the difference between rigorous thinking and spontaneous thinking, it's not to say that in a lot of the stuff we, we really plan and analyze cannot create huge value. It's just let's not automatically bias towards that over what's available in the moment. Because for example, you come out of your script in a pitch, that connection with the client that you kind of come out of your script to make, that shows huge credibility in the room. You may uh, overcome an objection you didn't know that they had. Um, you may create a rapport which ends up sealing you the deal because so much of this stuff is personality led. That's the balance between, hey, I've got a great pitch I've spent ages on, and also, but I'm not afraid to come out of it in the moment and find some resources that are present in this moment that often people overlook. I think as well, you know, um, sometimes when you are going into a big meeting or maybe you're going to have a conversation with a loved one or a friend or a partner, and it's going to be a difficult conversation, and you tell your friends about it beforehand, and I'm going to go and speak to them now, wish me luck. And then how many times have you heard someone come out and say, well, that didn't go the way I thought it was? <laughs> That's a perfect example. That's a brilliant example. So I can really relate to that because last night <laughs> I had a... I had a chat with a friend of mine and he's just gone through a pretty, pretty brutal breakup. And I had to tell myself before I went in, I, have, I thought again, I thought before I went in, what are the sort of things that I'm, I might want to say, or how do I want to show up here? So I was kind of, wasn't going completely blind and unprepared because I wanted to be a good friend. But then at the same time, the improv half of me is going, yeah, but make sure you don't talk too much. Make sure you can respond to what's actually in front of you. Otherwise, we just miss the mark all the time, right? And I think, you know, you say like, oh, that didn't go how I, how I thought it would do. A lot of people, I work with managers who talk to direct reports or do appraisals and they come in with a load of assumptions about the other person and they don't, they don't explore the reality of the other person or what's actually happening in that moment. They kind of machine gun stuff they prepared at them and then it just kind of it, it offends or it misses the spot well also it's that thing in a dynamic if the dynamics off with two people you both know it's off it's rarely one person who's imagining it that's just gaslighting when the other person tells you that but it's if you do confront it sometimes you can make the mistake of thinking that the other person is seeing and feeling the opposite or the same things that you are and that's where it's not always the same yeah yeah, we talk we talk a lot about exploring exploring assumptions in improv and like when you're in in a moment together. So on stage, you've got you both might have two completely separate ideas of what that scene's about. Two people on the stage, and obviously it's not scripted. So you've got no idea what's going on. So you have to really slowly explore each other's assumptions by listening, giving, and taking. So you get on the same page emotionally and 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 in terms of where, where your mindset and thinking is at. But actually, it's also really helpful to call it out sometimes. It's really helpful to make clear offers and to make to state how you're feeling. So making, making I call it in the book, making the subtext text. And again, there are emotional challenges here. But I've, I've really found it, it's made a massive difference in my romantic relationship where, you know, not all blokes are bad communicators. Archetypally, guys aren't great. I, I wasn't great for a long time, especially talking about emotional stuff and not getting my needs met and going, well, why isn't that happening? So, like, well, nobody knows them because I won't state them. I go, well, you have to read it implicitly in how I'm being. It was crazy. I mean, we expect people to read our minds, whereas a lot of improv, because it is all, it's not scripted, it's all subtext. We have to call out that subtext and go, for example, you might make an I statement. So I'm, I'm sad today. Or you might go to the other person. And this is a really good hack, I think, to kind of, if a conversation is being a bit vague and you're not quite sure how to read the other person and you're not connecting, you can just say something like, you seem, and then label it, and they can always correct you. But it's, again, it's this idea of making this subtextual, textual, if you like, and so you're actually exploring each other's inner worlds on a more literal way so you can get to it. Yeah, rather than feeling it and then responding, just call out. 
How did you set about structuring a book about improv? Because, and I know that might seem like a, a slightly random question, but again, like I said, when I was all, when I was going through it, I thought this is a really good book about improvisation. This is also a really good book about all of the things that can be hurdles in life. And they offer a really useful strategy in a really nice, light-hearted tone, if you like, mm. because uh, improv is at the core that can help me cut, overcome so many things. And it made me wonder as well, when you parlayed it into business, because that's like you, I mean, you're a business coach as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So in terms of how do you, there. no, it's all right. In terms of how you structure a book, that's a really good question because often a, 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 any any concept you write about is complex and interrelated. So, so each in, in the book, each chapter is after a kind of a big concept from improv and I've kind of lay it all out, explain it, illustrate it and all tie, tie it into life and, and work. But really, because they're all interrelated, you have to make slightly arbitrary decisions about how you split stuff up. So that is one of the biggest challenges, I think, of writing a book is going, well, how do I introduce this in an order that makes sense to everyone but isn't repetitive? Because how many business books or self-help books have you read where you're like, I think I've got this in the introduction and then they tell you the same thing again and again. So that was a challenge. Um, in terms of how we use it in business, we kind of almost take the opposite approach. So rather than laying out the concepts, we, we, take, on a, we, we take on a brief and go, right, so you need to get better at brainstorming, guys, as a team. Okay, how can we introduce these concepts to make you work really well in the room to get an, an amazing creative output or, oh, so you're pitching and you need to win some business today. How can we apply this stuff to that? Or um, a lot of it is around team dynamics and communication. And that, that the analogy there is really straightforward because improvisation is improv, sorry, because communication, I should say, is improvised. The analogy is pretty direct. So what we do there is just bring out an issue or a brief and then apply it with the client and work with them in the room. Yeah, there's a really interesting section, actually, uh, about status battles, mm. which I would really love you to explain for listeners, because I think that can be something that trips people up so many times. I know that I've definitely <laughs> tripped up over it in the workplace, and even just in social settings. I watch a lot of reality TV, Mm. And it's always very easy to see when someone's trying to be the alpha and they're not the alpha. So tell me about status battles and how the and how we can use the skills of improv in order in order to understand status relationships yeah. better. Absolutely. So status is one of those things I think where once you know about it as a concept, you see it everywhere and you notice it in yourself. Reality TV is a really great microcosm of that, which is why I think they so often you know, you watch a show like Big Brother and they'll bring on body language experts to analyze what's going on. And so much of that is about status. So maybe I should just get into what status is. So commonly, we think of status as where someone is on a hierarchy, right? So uh, if you make it, assume a business, right? you've got the chief executive, you've got managers, you've got the interns, roughly, and people in between that. And that is true, right? You can be high status because you're the queen, or you could be low status because... Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> You're, You're a not. butcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Having a butchers there. So um, <laughs> that's one understanding. The way we understand it in improv is status is actually a behavior. It's something we do. So we play a status all the time. It might change in terms of different situations. So I might be very high status, for example, when I'm facilitating a group of people because I have to be like that because I have to be the authoritative person in the room, but if I'm in a situation where I'm learning, for example, I'll be very low status. Or if I'm in that conversation last night I had with my friend, I make myself deliberately low status because I want them to talk a lot because it's for them, right? So what's, ask yourself, what status do you habitually play? Sometimes we change a lot. Sometimes we play a habitual status. And you can also give status to other people in how, in how you behave. So if you want someone to speak up, you, you raise their status and you lower yours. So if you think of a, your status as something that changes moment to moment and you can play it differently. So the next question is, well, how do I play the different statuses? So what do high status people do? Well, let's use the analogy of, I don't know, uh, the uh, reality TV. 
they, where are they sitting in the room? They're probably right in the middle of the room. They're probably making their body language big. They're probably being really loud. They're probably talking more than everybody else. They're probably shooting people down and slightly humiliating them or taking the mickey out of them, right? That's how we can make ourselves higher status by how we use space, how loud we talk, how much we talk. And we can also make ourselves lower status. We can, you know, uh, put ourselves in a less prominent position in the room. We can talk less. We can bring others into the conversation. We can give people compliments. There's loads of other ways. Explore them all in the book. But a really useful way to think of it is, how am I using status? And is it getting the outcome I want? So if I want to have a great conversation with someone, can I raise their status and lower mine? Or, hey, I need to really um, take focus here like I'm pitching or I want to uh, impress someone, then I need to raise my status. And if you think of it as not something you have, but something you can play, then suddenly it's really freeing and, and flexible. See, I like the idea as well of playing it for other people to benefit mm. the whole dynamic. But it also made me wonder about, um, again, thinking about previous conversations I've had on this podcast about feeling that you're not in the right space. And a lot of people, we've talked a lot about either staying in jobs that make people unhappy or toxic relationships or anything like that. Can you make any situation work for you by using those principles? Or is there also a key of knowing when to just go, actually, I'm gonna exit? And that's another brilliant, uh, another really brilliant question. It's sort of the elephant in the room in improv, right? Like, what if everyone else isn't playing by the rules? And that's a really, a really good point. So on stage, improvisers are trained to have a common set of rules. So we all kind of do this stuff. And so it works really well. What do you do when somebody else is, is not doing that? Well, maybe a frame of way to think of this is we, you can't control how others communicate or behave. You can only control how you respond to that and how you communicate. And often you can change someone's response by the energy in the way you approach them so if someone is getting in if you're getting into conflict with someone someone's being very aggressive what if you explored their assumptions and tried to understand them what if you did that first would that change their energy change the energy in the room and get you to a more productive space where you could move them then to somewhere where you was healthier and you were happier with i would say you probably could could you use the yes and technique with most people yes i would but clearly you have to pull yourself out of some situations that are unpleasant. So on stage, you know, there are some things that are absolute red flags and you're just chucked out. There's no question. Oh, someone says something, you know, racist, you know, you're not going to play with that. You're not going to find the offer in that. You're going to go, sorry, that's completely unacceptable. You're out of here. We're done. Um, and I think in life that's also true. But what I, what I think is maybe worth emphasizing is often in communication, we give the responsibility to the other person. So I think we talk in improv of communication being around R and R. So my job is to take responsibility and it's not what I say, it's what you hear and to take responsibility for my message getting across and being clear and expressing the subtext that I'm trying to get across. And I'm trying to relate to you the second R, which is really understand where you're at so I can connect to that and come to your island. And I'll do that first. And secondly, if, if you repeatedly are being unpleasant or won't play ball, then certainly remove yourself. But it's maybe a bit of a, a bit of a cop out sometimes to give away responsibility for the communication to the other person. I'm not sure it's always that healthy or productive. Mm. And am I right in thinking uh, in my research that you started therapy? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, I'm very happy to talk about it. I just Good. wondering what Crikey. I thought yeah, your yeah. face is making me think you thought I'd read your emails. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry. I certainly don't think that. Um, so this is a really good, this is, I'm, I'm working on another project at the moment, um, which is all about male friendship. And I, I, you know, I, I, I don't have great friendships with my male friends and I'm trying to get better at friendship. And so... That's, a, sorry oh. to interrupt you. That's a really amazing thing to say out loud. And to own. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. And I, I've, I, and I basically, I got to the point where I was 
about to get engaged and I thought I don't have a best man and I'm very happy to have a best woman I've got close female friends very happy to do that I'm not really worried about the aesthetics or what it actually is I was like bloody hell I haven't got any male friends and like owning that owning that and going I am lonely actually and trying to destigmatize that but out of that idea I thought well I need to do some inner work to get better at relating and relating to guys and, and then I discovered from doing therapy it's they're the best improvisers in the world um, because they are entirely exploring your landscape. And I know they're paid to do that, but they're not only doing that. A great therapist will listen in that way, ask good questions, explore where you're at, where you're feeling, what you're thinking, your stories. And then they'll say something back to you, which kind of frames what you've been thinking in a more clarified way. And you go, yeah, and it's really helpful. So I think that's for me, clarify something I was thinking about improv. So we want to always have more personal impact in your life. There are different ways of having that. It's how we present, right? More outward energy, body language, voice, my content. There's also how I react to moments shows great impact, but also transformational. And therapists have transformational personal impact. And they do that through very improvisational things. The energy is outward towards the other person. It's others focused. And that's what gets them to insight. And it completely changes people's lives and it's a very improvisational act you have the um i was going to say i wasn't going to say this but now because we've introduced therapy <laughs> you have a very similar aura to a to, to a therapist i think you're a very good listener and that's why i've maybe talked too much on this podcast because i'm like oh i feel like i'm getting into that role and you sort of have very patient you ask your questions and it's very very silent so i, I think you've got a very similar skill set oh that's a real compliment thank you because I had an amazing therapist who was life-changing and so to think that uh, there's any similarity with her is a real compliment thank you <laughs> my pleasure I've been email I've been emailing I've been interviewing quite a lot of psychotherapists and psychologists for this new project and they are, sometimes can be quite hard to interview themselves because they, <laughs> they don't like talking and they'll sort of be very quiet and you're like, um, ah, uh, and then you're sort of looking over your notes going, oh, I better find something, better find something here. So it can be a challenge, but. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, therapy is, is there, it's a very similar process. And I think what I, what I'm keen to do is, I mean, therapy doesn't need to be destigmatized. I think we kind of think of therapy as very touchy feely, especially in the UK very it's a bit kind of i don't want to use the phrase arty farty but people are a bit sort of eye roll about it still a bit like it does it woo woo mm. nonsense yeah exactly and improv maybe has a similar kind of easy to think in a similar way but actually when you take one step back from therapy as we've just talked about you take one step back from how improvisation works you go this isn't woo woo at all it's super practical and it, it's a brilliant analogy for how to really have amazing conversations more consistently and much stronger relationships. Well, that's the thing that really struck me. If the thing we said at the top, if life is improvised, then studying the art of improvisation surely will just mean that you'll get better at life. It's like, I like reading books, but if I go and study literature, then I will then understand the books that I'm enjoying in even greater detail. And that might even maximize and amplify my enjoyment of that book. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, books are a really interesting one. So I'm I'm working on another project at the moment, another another book, and I'm reading amazing authors and I'm going, oh, I'm learning about how to be better at this. But what I'm not necessarily doing yet is translating their amazing abilities into my abilities. And I'd <laughs> like to do that as we go. I think it's true for, true for all sorts of people. But I'm now aware in the moment of going, oh, I could make a different choice here. And I, that's, and I think the analogy with improv is this, is you become aware of some of the bad habits or the emotional blockers you're bringing to some of this real simple stuff. And over time, you can transform your behavior. But it's, a lot of it is also self-awareness. So like to slightly decode what improvisation is and what an amazing conversation is, what creativity is, allows you to bring awareness in terms of the blockers. So you have more choices and there is freedom in choice. And I think that's one of the things that improv gives you. And again, maybe tie it back to, uh, to therapy. I think my therapist said that to me the other day. So we're just trying to get aware, 
get awareness of your patterns here. And then you, you have a choice about how you respond next time. I was like, make, make it sound like a child. She's, she's way more intelligent than that. <laughs> Were you playing uh, with bricks? <laughs> I play with bricks, Play-Doh. I had my face painted like a tiger. It's the only way I can express myself. No, but it's true. But it's that once removed position that like with therapy, essentially somebody else just sort of stops you from touching the electric fence, just pulls you back a little bit and you can see with a bit more clarity. Yeah. And I realized last night, actually, on the way to that conversation with my friend, it's come up again and again, apologies. Right. It's before I'd done therapy, I had the improv stuff. But before, now I went to, I'd done, well, I've done like five months of weekly therapy. And I was like, oh, I'm really conscious of how to be a good receptive person here and be emotionally engaged and expressive. But for me, it was a sign of like all that inner work that was slightly under the surface has suddenly popped up, popped above the surface. I'm gone. Oh, I can use this now, and so a lot, so much of behavioural change is that. And I think improv is a great analogy for that. So I call it it's like if you do a class, you know, guys, buy my book, but then do a class if you want. But the, what the class will do is it's like a gym, right? It's kind of you push up against these different emotional blockers for great listening or overcoming conflict or coming up with ideas. You kind of rub up against them and you're kind of aware of your own baggage you bring to that and then over time you overcome that so there's awareness and then after awareness is the free uh, freedom Home. <laughs> do you know what the way that you're describing it's making me think of improvisation as a really intense rally of tennis yeah with lobs and like you know right down the back just inside the line and the conversation that you had with your friend last night is reminding me a bit of chess it's the same thing but it's slowed down still tactical yeah i think tennis is a, is a good one i can't remember i don't think i use this analogy in the book but it was one i was thinking about which is a great conversation is like a tennis rally but what is a good rally i don't i mean if, um do you play tennis emma no no okay well i you, think you i'd know, be really good at it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> good. That's good. Good, it's a good thing to assume. I think I'd be great at that sport. I've never tried. <laughs> yeah, I thought I think I'd be a great F one driver. Yeah, um, I bet you would be. Yeah. Um, but tennis is you have a rally, right? You're knocking the ball between you, or in a match, or in a warm up. You kind of it is that you're kind of slightly responding to the other person's shot, but also what else are you doing? You're if you're trying to enjoy the game, you don't always want to hit it straight back to them. You're slightly moving each other around the court. So this is the balance between being responsive and being generous to the other person, but also sometimes challenging, pushing them around. And how often do a lot of people communicate a bit like the server in tennis? So they're just smashing down aces, flying past the other person's ear. And there's not no connection there. And then the other person takes their turn to smash it down. So often bad conversations are just kind of like throwing zingers at each other, but never meeting. And so I think the rally is maybe a really, actually a really good metaphor. I'm, so well I'm, done. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something slightly, slightly different, but it is still about communication. It's still about that kind of, uh, that rally and that back mm. and forth with people. And where yeah. does... I think a lot of people, certainly me, and so maybe I might be speaking for some people listening, when we're in any interaction, I want people to come away from having spent time with me and I would like them to think, she was nice and hopefully I made them laugh at least once. That's, that's like goals for me. But sometimes in being nice and people-pleasing, that can sometimes go down a road that sometimes isn't particularly helpful. And I wonder just in improvisation or in the business training that you do, does nice come into it? Um, no. Well, it comes into it as much as it comes into anything. I don't think people should be deliberately unpleasant. So a, a lot of the methodology of improv is about getting a, a good outcome for yourself and for, or for the group. So the reason why improvisers work on these and train in these mutually agreed rules or or techniques skill sets mindsets is because when they use them they are more likely to get a really good result and they're going to get there more effectively and more efficiently similarly with conversations if you use this stuff you're more likely to get a good outcome 
you're not only doing it to be nice to the other person, you're doing it because it's going to work for you as well. So by being a good com- being a good listener, by giving other people focus occasionally, by being vulnerable, I'm going to get the best out of them. I'm going to connect with them. But I'm also more likely to benefit from that interaction as well. So I think it's about not seeing conversations, communications, collaborations as transactional, which is very easy to do. I'm trying to get something out of this. But it's not to say that you're not going to get something out of it. Because clearly, like friendships, we think a lot about friendships. Friendships to survive and be worthwhile have to we have to have a common faith in the future that we're both going to get something out of this and the moment one of us loses faith in that common future that friendship is over so that means that i have to get something out of it but also i have to give you something out of it and actually mutually we'll get to a better outcome if we both do that so i think that's the balance there but it isn't about being nice but you still will get a good outcome for yourself I like that very much because I think sometimes the appearing nice can be a real obstacle because it stops you from actually saying what you want and sometimes saying what you mean for fear of somebody thinking that you're not the person that you want them to perceive. Absolutely. I mean, this comes up all the time, for example, working with businesses, say you're in you, team teamwork and like you have someone who's lets everyone tread on them and is being very nice, won't speak up and they think that they're, they're being nice. But actually, in a sense, it can be quite selfish because we need your idea. We need your contribution. Your contribution is worthwhile. Other people might not be as generous with focus as they could be, but we need you to step up and contribute. Same in a scene. The, per- the person who won't speak up, won't give of their ideas, of their energy, um, is, 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 is not being generous with that. So I think there's another way of framing it is, is also that you want to you show people and contribute all the good stuff you've got in your head and in your, in your and, heart. And also there's the fear of what people think. And I would expect that that's probably a reason why lots of people are booked to go to an improv class and then maybe haven't turned up because they've worried not about what they will do in the class or what they will do in the interaction, but what other people will think of what they do. So um, how do you get people out of that way of thinking? So I think what you've just brought up there is probably the biggest thing that people come to improv for and the biggest thing they get out of it, which is you stop fearing failure so much. So how does that work? Well, there's this, this idea of looking glass self, right? It's Charles Cooley, who's a, he's a sociologist. I talk about him in the book. It's quite a famous theory, this, that, what what shame is, what fear is, is it what we imagine other people are thinking about us. And what improv is good at is we design the classes that you'll fail lots of times in quite fun, silly ways. And when you make the mistake, we make sure it's celebrated. It's literally actively applauded and celebrated. And you realize that the failure is not a show-stopping disaster. You realize that most people really are not thinking or caring about your mistakes because they're thinking about themselves. And also that the mistake might end up being an asset. So once you celebrate failure like that, you, you, you can kind of get over it. And it's exposure therapy. You make so many mistakes that you stop caring about them. And again, that is what is the really freeing aspect. But how do you get over failure? I think you've got to fail quite a lot. And what improv does is create a safe environment and a social environment where that failure is public, but in a way that's enough comfort to allow you to do it. And also you'll have a laugh with it. A friend of mine tried to inoculate themselves against failure or rejection, I should say specifically. And so just for a, a sustained period of time, just asked for things, fully expecting to get rejected so that they got used to it. So it was like, contacting the landlord and saying can you reduce my rent thanks uh, going into a coffee shop and saying can you give this to me for free all of like literally just all of those sorts of things and was actually surprised at how a obviously got a lot of rejection a lot of you are you a mess but also quite quite interestingly a lot of yeah okay yeah um yeah that's really that's really interesting uh, there's a there's a an exercise in the book called collect nose, which is very similar, which is if you reframe 
we always try and collect yeses. But what if you try to collect no's and you, you judge yourself on how many times you heard no? And the odds are you'll get hear a yes a lot, as you've just just suggested. And it changes the frame. Like we, We're not trying to avoid failure. We're trying to actually use failure as almost a criteria for taking a risk. So that's another reason why we celebrate failure is that if you're celebrating failure in improv, we know you're putting yourself out there. If you put mm. yourself out there, we know you are going to create interesting things with other people. So what if you use failure almost as a criteria? Another exercise in the book is a failure resume. So I ask people to, rather than write your CV, which is an amazing CV of all the great stuff you've done. So like, if, if you went on my website, you're going to see my bio on maxdickens.com, all the nice things, cool things I'm proud of. But I could easily have write one 10 times as long about all the things I've done that have been absolutely <laughs> woeful. Failure resume of, resume of this book is... You know, the first draft, 80,000 words, almost none of those words ended up in the final final copy. Yikes. And I had to rewrite it in about two months to meet the deadline. And I got so many notes uh, from from people I'd given it to to read, from, from the editor. Um, and failure is super, super normal. And it's I think we need to stay failure fit because we fail so much in life. And at the moment, well, the world is obsessed with feedback. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like People are asking for feedback all day long. We review everything. I think we need to get failure fit to really thrive in the modern world and to enjoy it. And it's something you need to stay on top of, a bit like you know your aerobic fitness. You need to keep regularly failing or topping up your attitude to failure because otherwise it kind of those, that, that kind of internalized shame creeps in again. And I still see it. If I haven't done improv for a while, I still find myself kind of having that, that unhealthy response to errors. I have to get back into it again. It's like we were saying right at the top of the show about uh, you get to this point where you think, I know what the world is. I understand it. Yeah, I, I've got everything sussed. And it makes you a very small world. And actually failure is a big part of expanding your world and expanding your horizons. Um, now, you are an expert in all of this and you have just mentioned maxdickens.com. So let's talk about Hoopla and where people can find you. And also if someone's listened to this and is thinking, I want to have a, I want to try it out. You are doing it in COVID times. You are doing it online. So what is the current state of play for you? Sure. So um, I'm a director at Hoopla Impro. So that's Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A, Impro, I-M-P-R-O.com. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit dyslexic, so I had to double check that spelling of my own business. That's always healthy, isn't it? Uh, but we do classes in person, uh, lots of those all over London, and we do them online as well, especially for complete beginners. You can do them on Zoom. They're really good fun. They're really, we say improv is for everyone, and we pride ourselves on making it the warmest, happiest, most fun place to learn how to do improv. And you'll be full of people like you. It's not going to be full of actors. It's going to be full of people like you. And we'd love to see you down there. Uh, and if you don't want to do it online, tons of classes uh, Are you as able well. to do them in person now? You can do them in person, yeah. So we've got, we're running in-person classes. They're socially distanced, but actually it works. It does work really well. Uh, and yeah, we'd, we'd really love to see you. And I think you'll find it quite addictive. So come and do a taster with us and, and, and have some fun. And also, obviously, the book is a great way to start and get into it and, and, it, and how, how this applies to your day-to-day -to -day too. It's interesting. I just interviewed on this podcast, James King, the film critic, who's written oh, yeah. a self-help book, which is a self-help book dressed up as Keanu Reeves. So it's wonderful because basically it's like all of these wonderful, brilliant uh, theories and ways of living, but wrapped up in things that either Keanu said or movies that he's done. And it's, it's a really clever self-help book because you would think, oh, I'll just take this into the bathroom, read it in the bath. And then actually you realize you're having a bit of a light bulb moment. And I feel yeah. like your book is a similar thing. And I think this is a brilliant self-help book. I really do think this is a brilliant self-help book for helping you understand yourself and others. And the key piece of that equation for me is understanding others. You're in therapy. I've done therapy. We can spend a lot of time trying to understand ourselves. And that is really helpful. But without understanding others and developing compassion for others, that work can meet a bit of a dead end. And I think this book gives some really valuable keys to being able to figure yourself out, but also be able to improve your relationships both professionally and personally. So I think it's a genius piece of work. Oh, thank you very much. I should have got you to do the blurb. <laughs>
email me I'll, I'll give you a blurb for the for the next edition <laughs> well there's another book coming out as well isn't there when is that due um i can't talk about that yet but it will be a while <laughs> okay. um yes Watch this space, get very excited. Well, there you go, everyone. Uh, MaxDickens.com, HooplaImpro.com. Is it .com? That's okay. right. And obviously the links to Max and everything that we have discussed, including the book, will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But Max Dickens, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've, 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 your questions were thought-provoking in a really good way, so thanks. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Or you can always DM me on social media where I'm at Emma Guns on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you want to speak to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast, all you have to do is go to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you're streaming and downloading this episode, and click the link to join the Facebook forum. You have to answer a couple of questions, agree to the rules, but then you will be welcomed in with open arms and we cannot wait to see you there. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.